The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me or, or maybe don't remember me, <laughs> uh, my name is Penny and uh, I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, if you're new or a guest visiting maybe for the last couple weeks or even the last couple months, um, you don't know who I am. I've been uh, away on sabbatical. The session in their generosity provided a time of extended uh, rest for me and my family. And so for the last few months uh, during the summer, uh, we have been on sabbatical where I've been able to rest and read and write and travel and have extended time with family, and it, it was a great time away. So, so thank you. Uh, thank you for the blessing that it was, and, and it was. It was a blessing to me and to my kids. We're very thankful for it, and we're thankful to be back. Uh, it's great to be with you all. Um, great to see your faces and hear your voices and um, to fist bump you kids and uh, feel your embrace. So uh, we have missed you and love you and are thankful to be with you. So uh, one of the reasons why I was given a sabbatical, if you remember from a number of months ago, we uh, sent out a letter that said, why, why do pastors get sabbaticals? And one of the reasons is to uh, rest and re-energize and be ready to re-engage in whatever next season of ministry is coming. And so that was one of the reasons. And so, uh, so I'm excited to be back and to be ready to uh, re-enter into this next season of ministry. And as I thought about that, as I thought about what, uh, what ministry is to look like and, and who we are to be and what we are to believe, there's a passage that kept coming back to my mind. This is a passage I've thought about m- for many, many years. It's actually one verse, but it encapsulates in a very succinct and beautiful way what it is that we are to believe, what is the message that we are to embrace, and what is the manner of our lives in light of that message. And this passage, this verse, is found in 1 Thessalonians 2. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians 2. The the verse that I'm thinking of specifically is verse 8. Verse 8, it's this beautiful passage that that I go back to again and again and again. That, That when I think about what it means to be a people, what it means to be the church, what it means for us to dwell together, this is a verse that often comes to my mind. And so for this morning, we're going to look at this one passage before we get into a a longer series. Next week, we're going to start a new series uh, in the book of Romans. So uh, we're we're not going to, we're going to be in that for a few months. (laughs) Let's just be honest. Uh, (laughs) We're going to be in it for a few months. But before we get there, I do want us to look at this one passage that helps us to see what it is, what the message is that we are to embrace and the manner of our lives in light of that message. So let's read 1 Thessalonians 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, um, those seven verses that come before to give us some context as well. This is what Paul writes. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, 
but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we know that you have given us your word as a witness to your work in this world, as a revelation of what it is that we are to believe about you and how we are to live. And so we pray that you would help us now so that we would, from your word, see you clearly, that we would understand what it is that you have called us to believe and what you have called us to do. And so, Father, meet with us, open our eyes and soften our hearts and lead us into your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I wonder if you've thought recently or, or maybe at all about the various messages that we're confronted with every day. I mean, we're bombarded with different messages that our world throws at us, right? Different messages about what we are to believe, what we're to think, right? We see messages in the news, on social media. We cling to them with our minds. We hold fast to them with our hearts, right? We're bombarded with them. Messages about what it means to be a good parent or a faithful student, about what it means to be socially aware or environmentally conscious, right? Messages about what life should look like and what the good life is, Right? We hear these messages. In fact, we're surrounded by them so much that sometimes I think we, we don't even realize that we're being bombarded with them. It's just a cacophony of noise, visions and messages that are thrown at us. Well, a little over three years ago, David Brooks was writing an op-ed in the New York Times, and he was talking about the different messages that we hear, and he was trying to consolidate the messages of this world into five five messages, and, and he actually called them lies, five lies that our culture tells us. The lies included this, that career success is fulfilling, that I can make myself happy, that life is an individual journey, that we find our own truth, and the fifth one, that the rich and successful are more valuable than the poor and less successful. Now, that's a pretty good list because we don't have to think very hard or very long to know that these are actually messages that we are hearing on a regular basis, right? That these are the things that are being promoted, that, that I don't need anyone, right? I am a rock. I am an island. I can live on my own. I can create my own truth. All that matters, right? These are the messages that our world tells us. But these aren't the only messages that we hear, right? We hear other messages, messages about body image and sexuality and value, Right? Like, like you're only valued if you're in a romantic relationship. Once you're in a romantic relationship, you have value because you're married. And once you're married, you have value because you have children. And once you have children, you have value because your children are successful. Right? I mean, we feel that, don't we? Of course we do. We feel that pull. And it's not just those things, right? It's money and education, possessions and political affiliation. All of these things every day are confronting us with different messages about how we are to live and who we are and what we are to believe and what we are to love. 
We're so immersed in these messages and with these different visions of life that we need to be reminded and we need to be retold and we need to refocus on the most important message. And that's what Paul's doing in this passage. In this one verse, what Paul is doing is he is telling us the message of ultimate value, and that is the message of the gospel. That's what we hear in verse 8, right? The message, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, and he's going to go on and describe what else he shared with them, but he's telling them that that yes, I shared other things, but at the very minimum, at the very least, at the very foundation, I shared the gospel. Shared more, but not less. And this is important because Paul understands that what every single person, every single one of us is fundamentally in need of is the gospel. So what is the gospel? Well, at its most basic, the gospel is simply a translation of a Greek word that means good news. It's good news. But it's not just any good news, right? It's not just good news that gas prices are going down. Can we get an amen? That's good news, <laughs> right? It's not good news like your favorite store is having a sale. It's not that kind of good news. It's not just general news that is good, that is pleasurable. It is very specific. You see, when the New Testament uses this word gospel, good news, it is speaking about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity taking on flesh, and living a perfect life, and dying on the cross, and being buried, and risen, and returning again, and doing it so that our sins would be forgiven. Y'all, that is good news. And it is good news because it is in distinction from the bad news. Right? And we know the bad news, don't we? The bad news that because we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, that we share in their transgression. And that we ourselves have transgressed against God's law. That is the bad news. The bad news that, that every one of us, me included, have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and are deserving of his wrath and judgment, his displeasure. That we have sinned and fallen short of his glory. That is the bad news. But Jesus, Jesus lived a life of complete obedience, a life we could not live. And he died in our place. And he took God's judgment upon himself so it would not fall on us. And he showered us with grace and love and kindness. Y'all, that is the good news. That is the good news. That is the gospel that Christ has died for sinners and he is making all things new. Now listen, I know many of you and I know many of you know this and believe it and have believed it, right? And so it's easy for us as those who have embraced the gospel, who have heard this message, who have turned to Christ, it's easy for us to think, well, I know that, Penny, come on. I've believed that since I was young. Like, let's think about deeper, meatier theological sorts of things. But y'all, the gospel isn't just for those who first believed, and the gospel isn't just for those who, who maybe have only believed for a day or a week or a month. No, the gospel is for those who have believed for a hundred days and a hundred years. Because there is no deeper theology than that. 
all of our theology rests on the fact that Christ has come and he has lived and died and risen again so that our sins would be forgiven. We never leave that behind. That is our foundation. If anything, we need to keep coming back to it again and again and again. And that's what Paul's doing. He's presenting these people with that same gospel message they have already heard. I mean, think about it. in chapter 2, Paul's recounting his ministry to them. And he's reminding them of how he proclaimed the gospel and how they repented and turned from their idolatry and trusted in the Lord. And why is he doing this? It's not so that he would engage in some sort of history lesson or take a nostalgic walk down memory lane. He's recounting for them when they first believed because that message of the gospel in the past is what they need in the present. This is what they need now. And so do we. Because when we are surrounded by all sorts of alternative messages, it is very easy to start to believe them. It is easy for us to believe that we are valued because of what we do, not because of whose we are. Right? It's easy to think, well, sure, Jesus saved us, right? I've got eternal life. I'm going to go to heaven. But now I can live my life. And I'll live however I want. It's easy to believe that we live and move and have our being by our own efforts. But, but friends, those are the, the messages of our world. Those are not the messages of the gospel. No, what the gospel tells us is that every moment, every aspect of our lives is tied to Jesus. The message of the gospel is his grace has come to sinners like me and like you. And he is now our lives. And that is the message that we need to tell ourselves every single day. And we need to remind one another of. And the message that we need to proclaim to our neighbors and to our friends and to our co-workers and our classmates. Because that is the message that every one of us is in need of. That is the message that saves the world. That is the message that is the hope of eternal life. That is what we need. That is the message of our lives. But Paul doesn't just talk about the message of our lives. He also talks about the manner of our lives. Did you see it's the other half of verse 8? He says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You hear that? We shared the gospel, and we shared our lives. We shared the gospel We shared this message, and now we lived in light of that message by giving of ourselves. And that's what Paul did. I mean, he lived amongst them, and he ate with them, and he worked with them, and he heard their laughs, and he saw their tears. You see, the gospel message is not just a message we proclaim. It absolutely is. Right? Faith comes through hearing, and how can they hear if no one goes and tells them and proclaims it? It is a message we proclaim, but it is also a message we embody. We live out the implications of the gospel with each other by giving of ourselves in service and care and comfort. And we do this with love. We do it with love and compassion. I mean, that's what we hear Paul, right? He describes his life with them in verse 7. We were gentle among you. 
like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Verse 8, being affectionately desirous of you, you'd become very dear to us. Do you hear the language he uses to describe his relationship with them? I mean, it's a motive, isn't it? There's love and compassion. There is care. He longs to be with them. This is language that maybe, if, if we didn't know it was written by Paul, would, would maybe surprise us. Because think about what we know about Paul from reading the New Testament. Right? Paul was this guy who had been shipwrecked and beaten. He'd been stoned and, and persecuted. He had been mocked and thrown in jail. And with all of those experiences, it would be very easy to think that Paul would become this hardened, intense sort of man, right? And, and let's be honest, as we read some of his epistles, there's some intensity there, isn't there? Some directness. Even in our passage, he says he came boldly with the gospel. And was gentle like a nursing mother. I mean, think, think about how gentle that is. Right? Like, it, it may even sit, feel a little uncomfortable for us to describe ourselves that way, but, but yet that's how Paul describes himself. Like a nursing mother, I was gentle with you. Affectionately desirous of you. He was full of compassion filled with love and gentleness and kindness. Y'all, that is beautiful. It is beautiful, the emotion that he has for these people. And y'all, the message of the gospel, of God's love, has to be expressed in a manner in keeping with that love. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? This reminds me, this idea of being reminded of love with love. It reminds me of this uh, series of books that I was reading this summer. I had no intention at the start of the summer of reading this series, um, but uh, someone, a friend, gave me the book by Andrew Peterson called The God of the Garden. And it was the first book I read during, actually it was the second book I read during sabbatical. I read some Wendell Berry first, but anyway, um, I, I went to this book and, and it was beautiful. It was beautiful. It it, and it captured my imagination, and it got rooted in my heart, and it, it was this amazing, amazing book. And so after reading this book, I had to read some more Andrew Peterson, so I started reading the Wing Feather Saga. Have some of y'all read this? Oh, it's glorious. Y'all, so go get The God of the Garden, then read the Wing Feather Saga. So it's this beautiful four-part book, or four-part series. There's four books, and I'm in book four right now. And it's the story of these three children. They're called the Igabees in the beginning, but eventually we find out that they're actually wing feathers. And their names are Janner, Kalmar, and Lili. And they are the last people, them and their mother, they are the last people of this great city, this great land that has been destroyed by the evil Nag the Nameless and his despicable fangs. It, it's Fantasy, by the way, <laughs> in case you haven't picked that up. Um, and and uh, they're not just the last remnants of this place, but they actually are royalty. Royal blood flows through their veins. And Kalmar is the high king. And at some point at the end of book two, through black magic and evil sorcery, Kalmar is turned into a gray fang, which is a wolf. So this boy is turned into a wolf. He has fur and a snout and a tail. 
He has claws and sharpened teeth. He has been transformed into something horrible. He's no longer acting like a king, but as an animal who howls and bites and claws. And when people see him, they recoil in disgust because he is this animal, this brooding beast. And and warriors see him and they want to destroy him and kill him because he looks like he is a member of the enemy's army. He has to be restrained in his room so that he will not claw and bite those who come to see him. That he won't jump out of his bed and kill his brother who lies in the bed beside him, who is bearing the wounds that he has suffered from Kalmar himself. And every single day, his mother, the queen, and Janner, his brother, and his sister, Lily, come into their room. And so how do you think they would respond? What do you think that they would say? I mean, he's attacked them. He's a different thing. You would expect, right, maybe that they would shake him, that they would take him by the shoulders, that they would yell at him, that they would scream, snap out of it. But that's not what they do. No, each day the queen comes to his room and looks into his eyes and past the fur and the snout and the tail and calls him by name. With compassion, she says, you're Kalmar, not a fang. With kindness, she says, you're the high king, not a beast. With deep affection, she looks into his yellow eyes and says, I love you. I'm your mother, I love you. Even when he goes to nip at her and to snap at her, she comes back again and again saying, I love you. And at night, her brother who's in the bed beside him, who is nursing those wounds that Kalmar inflicted upon him, he reminds him and tells him stories before he was transformed, stories of them playing and laughing and running and their mischievous behavior against their grandfather. And his brother and sister and mother, instead of recoiling in disgust, instead of fleeing with fear. They remind him day after day after day that he's loved. And they remind him with love. And they remind him with compassion. And they remind him with gentleness. And friends, that's how we are to live with one another. That we share the message of the gospel and we share our lives and we tell one another the message and we do so in a manner keeping with the message. And y'all, that makes sense, doesn't it? Doesn't that make sense that, I mean, it, it would be strange, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be strange to hear someone speak of forgiveness with a bitter tone? Wouldn't it be bizarre for someone to speak of grace while their face is frowning? Wouldn't it be disorienting and off-putting to hear someone speak of love with a smile? That doesn't make sense. Because we know that those who know God's love and have experienced his grace and rest in his forgiveness will be a people who forgive and who will be a people who are gracious and love. Those people who speak of love with a frown, it's, we can easily wonder, do they even believe the message that they proclaim? 
because the manner of our lives is to be in keeping with this message. That we are to be a people of forgiveness and grace and love. That is the manner of our lives reflecting the message that we believe. And y'all, I have to tell you, that is beautiful. And it stirs my heart because this is the kind of person I want to be. And this is the kind of people I want us to be. That the ways of the manner of our lives would, would be in line with the gospel. And as I think about this, and I long for it in my own life and hope for it in ours, I'm also reminded that often my life doesn't look like this. I mean, the truth is, is that often my life doesn't look like the message that I proclaim. I mean, we have all, me included, we have all failed to live with love and grace and forgiveness. I mean, haven't we been harsh and absent at times? Haven't we forgotten to call or reach out? Haven't we, under the auspices of, of giving space, abandoned when what was needed was presence? I know I have. We all have. And so what are we to do? Well, well it'd be easy for us in that moment to start to think, well, well, when I can do this right, when I can love and forgive, when I can be gracious and merciful, then, then when I can do it perfectly, that's when I'll start doing it, right? Like I'll get my act together and then I'll start doing it for other people, right? It's easy for us to think, I mean, that's how we think right? But friends, don't wait for that, because you will wait forever. <laughs> Do not wait for that. No, we, we need to share our lives even when we are sharing them imperfectly. And so we say to one another, I'm sorry I haven't called. I'm sorry that I forgot. I'm sorry that I missed. Please forgive me, and here I am. We give our lives for the sake of one another. We live in a manner in keeping with our message. We give of ourselves with love, even in perfect love, and we do so because Jesus has given his life with perfect love. And he has done that for us. You see, friends, that is the message that Jesus gave himself to the point of death. And he had compassion upon us because we were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He, he loved us, his enemies. That's what we were. He loved us, his enemies, and gave his life so that we would not remain his enemies, but we would have new life. And he did so out of love. Friends, it is because we have failed and because we have forgotten and because we have misstepped that we need this message today and tomorrow and the next day and every day of our lives. And so, friends, let us, let this message of the gospel be implanted in our hearts and never deviate from our lips. Let this message bear the fruit of lives living together marked by the love of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have not left us to ourselves or alone, but that because of your love, you sent your Son, our Lord Jesus. You sent him to live and to die and to rise again, that our sins would be forgiven. 
And so as recipients of that grace, as those who have been forgiven, as the new creations that we are, we ask that you would make us people of grace, people of forgiveness, people of love, so that the manner of our lives would match the message that you have brought, that you have sent your son, and that he is our life. So we ask that you would work and move so that we would live in light of this message. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our King, our Lord, our Savior, and all God's people said together, Amen.